In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. Another crunch week. But then again, last week was supposed to be a crunch week as well. When do the Brexit negotiations finally need to conclude? And when will Boris Johnson decide if he's going for a hard Brexit or a no deal? We'll look at the mounting economic and logistical costs for the UK of both as the negotiators get back together for face-to-face talks after their COVID-related isolation. And taking back control of British waters, Brexit means getting more fish. But how much fish is the EU prepared to relinquish? We assess Michel Barnier's opening offer. And we look again at how Brexit could lay waste to long-established food supply chains in Ireland, between Ireland and the UK, and between the UK and continental Europe. And we'll explain why sausage wars suddenly grabbed the headlines this week. But first, Tony, starting with you, and we'll go to Sean after this, bring us up to speed on how the talks are going. Well, the talks have resumed in a face-to-face format this evening, as far as as we know, Michel Barnier travelled over to London from Brussels, having had a fairly busy day. He briefed EU ambassadors at 8.30 this morning. Then he was due to brief uh, the European Parliament's Brexit steering group. And then this afternoon, he was due to have a conf- video conference with fisheries ministers from eight coastal states and then hop on the Eurostar to London. So uh, while He's obviously been in isolation since the events of of last week when a member of his team tested positive. Um, uh, But now it looks like he's out of isolation and he's getting back uh, to London to have face-to-face negotiations, which means obviously his team uh, will have face-to-face negotiations over the weekend and into next week as well. I'm told an awful lot of technical work has been done in the meantime. They are wading through uh, stuff, but... We are at the stage of the negotiations where there's the technical and the political and at a certain point, you know, big political decisions will have to be made. The view in Brussels is that those decisions will have to be made by Boris Johnson and the view again here is that he hasn't really made up his mind yet. Um, uh, So we should see now in the next few days because really after next week, it, it just won't be possible, I think, for the European Parliament to ratify the treaty by the end of December. Uh, and then after that, you get into a very messy situation of provisional application and all of that uh, complication. So uh, next week really is, is I think, is the last chance for them to do a deal. Yet another last chance, uh, Tony, by the looks of things. Look, we're recording this at 5 to 8 on uh, Friday evening, according to their website, the Eurostar from Brussels, the late one because of that busy day Michel Barnier has been having, uh, is due in here to St Pancras station uh, at five minutes past eight. So uh, about 10 minutes time, that team should be stepping off the train 
uh, and going through the uh, border uh, checks, uh, such as they are at St Pancras, uh, getting into their hotel, uh, preparing for another long day in a dreary office block in Victoria Street, um, discussing with Lord Frost and his team uh, about what's going on. But yeah, look, things... As Tony says, there's been lots of technical work, but the big political moment that we've been looking for this time when Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen get together in some kind of a format to break the political logjam, we're still waiting for that. And is it going to be this week, the crunch week, or is it going to be next week, another crunch week? I mean, how long can you stretch this thing out? That is the key question at this point. We know everything that has to be decided upon we just don't know when the top-level politicians are going to intervene and actually make the kind of deal that po- top-level politicians make. Right. Well, look, let's grasp at a couple of straws here. Sean, has anything changed really on the ground? Boris Johnson recruiting a new chief of staff, the context, the economic context, it possibly makes an argument for cutting a deal rather than not cutting a deal. How has that been seen? Well, the economic content absolutely makes the case for for cutting a a deal. Um, During the week, we had Rishi Sunak, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance Minister here, uh, standing up in Parliament to deliver his spending statement, the government's plan for how it's going to spend money for next year. Normally, this is a multi-year programme, but because of COVID, they've cut it back to just one year. Uh, During his speech, he didn't mention Brexit once. Not once. It was all about the impact of... Quite an achievement, uh, considering that the uh, very uh, economic forecast on which he was basing his uh, spending plan mentions Brexit, has a special chapter about Brexit, and that chapter isn't good. Uh, It says the British economy is going to shrink. It's going to get smaller than it ought to be if it was still in the European Union uh, because of Brexit. So it'll be smaller and therefore poorer in five years' time with a Brexit uh, than without a Brexit. But it's going to get poorer again if there's a no-deal Brexit, uh, if they fail to make that political moment during this crunch week or the next crunch week or whenever. So with uh, a free trade agreement, the economy gets 4% smaller in five years' time. With no deal, it gets 6% smaller in five years' time. And when you turn that into pounds, it's a lot of money. It's, It's about £120 billion smaller of an economy. And of course, smaller economy means less tax income uh, coming into the government coffers. Now, some people throughout the Brexit process have been saying, oh yeah, never mind, well, these are the, the social media types, of course, never mind, uh, uh, no deal, we'll get to collect taxes on EU imports, which is true. Now, the uh, Office for Budget Responsibility, who did all this forecasting, said, yeah, you'll get around £6 billion uh, pounds in additional tax revenue from uh, tariffs and, and various other custom measures. However, the economy is going to be smaller and that means you're going to get less tax revenue. How much less? £14 billion less. So that's more than rubs out all of the gains uh, from having uh, the uh, tariff revenues in. That means that your government has to borrow money to make up the gap. It's also got to pick up additional government spending because there's going to be more unemployed people. They reckon the short-term hit, as in after Christmas hit, if there's no deal, is going to be about another quarter of a million people losing their jobs. That's coming on top of the million that are going to lose their jobs when the COVID payments are are, are withdrawn. 
And that was the kind of money, the big money that the Chancellor was talking about during the week. So it's a really rough looking uh, economic prospect in the immediate term here. But not having a deal uh, makes that worse. Um, there would also be losses. They estimate about four billion loss on loan guarantees that have gone out to uh, small businesses um, that have been managing to hang in there because, through the COVID crisis. But uh, a no deal Brexit would wipe them out. So you're looking at an ongoing borrowing requirement of about an extra ten billion pounds a year as a result of not getting a Brexit deal. And these are not trivial sums. Uh, these are fairly. Uh, chunky pieces of, of, of money uh, floating around in the British system. And remember, they're going to have to start making savings, uh, either through cutting back on spending or on increasing taxes. These, again, were things that the Chancellor didn't talk about uh, in his speech, doesn't want to talk about, but the uh, colossal sums of money that have been thrown into the British economy as of necessity because of COVID do imply that there will be adjustments down the line. We remember adjustments 10 years ago uh, in the Irish context. They're going to be coming here in this country as well. It has been hit harder economically uh, by COVID uh, than uh, most of the other advanced economies in the world. And the uh, Budget Responsibility Office are warning that the uh, not doing a deal is going to hit it uh, and hit it even harder. Also, uh, picking up on something we mentioned the other week uh, from the National Audit Office, warning about uh, VAT and customs frauds uh, that will happen, particularly as a result of not operating uh, a full border control model for at least six months, uh, as is the stated intention of the government here. The OBR have put some numbers onto this. They reckon the VAT loss will be about £600 million and the customs loss about £100 million. So you can see there's some pretty chunky lumps of money uh, that are floating around, potentially being snaffled by criminals as a result of uh, the uh, non-implementation of, of border uh, controls for the next six months. So all told, from a financial point of view, you're better off having a deal than not having a deal. Right. Well, let's let's have a look at one area where... Some, it seems, Tony, detail has emerged on the kind of offer that would be made to achieve the deal. And that was in the area of fisheries. Now, what emerged from your good self earlier today was um, an offer by Michel Barnier to give the UK back 15 to 18% of the fish swimming in UK waters. Um, the wires reporting today, or the Sun, should I say, reporting today that the British government had rejected this opening gambit. Give us the detail, as you know it, of what the offer was. You know, we've spoken in the podcast before about fisheries a lot, and I, I think we've talked in detail about this, the the approach that Michel Barnier is, is going to take, and that is, you know, look at the overall value of the fish that EU fleets catch in British waters. It's about 650 million euro per annum. And I think before we, we've we've said that his approach would be to say, well, we, you know, we'll we'll give you some of that back. Um, how much of that we give you back is really the the, the spectrum on which you negotiate. Um, I don't know if we've talked about specifics, but certainly this morning, Michel Barnier was briefing EU ambassadors, and I, I spoke to an EU official afterwards who said, well, um, he actually publicly in the context of the EU ambassadors said uh, as for the first time, as far as he was aware, that the offer would be between 15 and 18 percent of the value of the fish that EU fleets catch. So that would be up to 170 million euro worth of fish. And this would be 
across the pelagic and demersal uh, species. Fish wonks out there will be uh, getting palpitations when I use those words. I don't entirely know what they mean, but it, I think it effectively means that fish that swim near the surface and the fish that swim in deeper waters. Um, so, so this was him saying, okay, this is going to, this is going to be my opening offer. Now, I, I spoke to a British official this afternoon and said, well, look, that's not a new figure, um, which implies that he has proposed this already informally in the negotiations, but now he was telling member states, this is what I'm going for. But of course, to the UK, as we've talked about before, fishing is a totemic prize for Brexiteers. It really is a vivid way of showing that you've taken back control of your waters. But of course, the EU has argued time and again that, okay, these may be British waters from 1st of January, but the fish that swim in those waters may have been born or spawned in Irish waters or whatever, or Spanish waters. So it's not that simple. And fishing communities for decades, indeed uh, generations or centuries, have fished in British waters. And we're we're just not going to throw them to the wolves uh, because of Brexit. So it gives you an indication of where the fishing scrap is going to be. Um, I mean, the UK would say, well, okay, that's his opening offer. It's not like if our opening offer is 100%, we get 100% of the value and and then we meet in the middle. Uh, That's not good enough either. Uh, So it's not like the the UK is going to be satisfied with getting 40 or 50% of the value of what EU fleets catch at the moment. They're going to want a lot more because to them, the the key word is significant, that what they get out of fisheries has to show that there is a significant kind of tangible benefit uh, from Brexit. But it's interesting that he should have you know, spelled it out today, which I'm told was what happened, uh, even though th- those figures may have been kicking around the negotiating room for a, f- a few weeks. Right. Uh, of course, it, it got a fairly dismissive response from, from the UK saying this was a derisory amount and would never work. Right. Well, let, let's hear some Irish reaction now, because just uh, actually in the last half an hour, I caught up with Charlie McConlogue, the Minister for Agriculture and Fisheries. And here's what he had to say. Minister, you were briefed by Michel Barnier early today, earlier today. The offer of 15 to 18% of the UK's, of the quota of, uh, in UK waters to the UK, what did you make of that offer, first of all? Well, I'm not going to go into the specific detail of the, of the meeting column, but just to say that I, I used the opportunity to, to ensure the absolute importance uh, was stressed of uh, fighting to protect our coastal communities um, and uh, the, the Irish and European fishing sector in terms of the uh, Brexit negotiations over the next number of days. Um, there was a, it was very useful to have an update in relation to where negotiations are at. They're at a, a very critical stage. But the Irish position has always been that it's crucial that our quota uh, species are, are protected, that our access to British waters also is maintained, and that we ensure that there is leverage used between attaching fisheries negotiations to other parts of the trade deal agreement. And that remains our position, and even more importantly so now in the days ahead. Is it realistic to expect, though, 100% of quota maintenance at this stage? Does there have to be some loss for Ireland? Well, I think it's really important that uh, there is a full recognition in terms of both the European side and and the the, the UK side of the fact that there's many different parts of the Brexit deal and uh, agreement. And that means that there has to be a give and take across uh, other issues and other aspects of the free trade deal. So we've been making it very clear the absolute importance of uh, quota share and of, of water access to the Irish and European fishing sector and constantly pointing out the absolute importance from an EU negotiation point of view 
of linking that to other aspects of the free trade agreement. And uh, I think in terms, certainly in terms of the day uh, and over the last period of time, we've made it very clear in terms uh, to Mr. Barnier, the importance of linking that. And I think certainly um, it's really crucial uh, as we come towards hopefully a positive conclusion that, uh, that those linkages are there. The UK's Sun reporting today, finally, then, that the British government has rejected what was said to be a 15 to 18 percent offer. That presumably means they're looking for a better offer. How would that sit with you? Well, I think the absolute value of our coastal communities, uh, of the employment that fishing represents, uh, with over 16,000 jobs nationally in Ireland, and it's a 1.2 um, billion uh, worth, uh, value to our economy, um, it's essential, really, that those are protected in the, in the negotiations. Um, and I think there is room, certainly, within the overall free trade agreement for hopefully, if the willingness is there, for a free trade agreement that will be good for the EU and good for the UK. But central to that as well, I think, is a recognition of the fact that uh, fisheries is, is, is really important um, national and, and European prerogative. And certainly, in terms of the engagement I have with Mr. Barney today, I restress that and restress the importance over the coming days of fighting to protect our, our, our fishing, uh, our fishermen's interests and our coastal communities as well. Just on fishing, I got a note this afternoon from uh, an economics consultancy, CEBR, uh, here in London. It was headlined, Let Them Eat Fish. Uh, and it was a bit of a plea for the government to prioritise other industries over fishing, notably finance. Well, you might expect that from the City of London types, of course. Uh, but making the point, finance is 8% of uh, Britain's uh, economic output. Uh, fishing is 0.02%. And according to this chap, even if they caught every single fish swimming in the UK territorial waters, uh, it would only rise to 0.05% of GDP uh, and every man, woman and child in Britain would have to eat three times more fish than they currently do to make up for the fact that they wouldn't be able to uh, export um, that uh, amount of fish. Uh, another lot who have been uh, making some pleas for a bit of help on their side uh, is the automotive industry. Um, £79 billion worth of turnover in this country, employing directly 180,000 people in car making and over 800,000 in ancillary trades and, and uh, uh, supply chains, etc. 13% of UK exports, so massive industry, but they've been really uh, crushed, particularly this year by uh, COVID-19. They published figures yesterday showing uh, that year-to-date their output is down uh, almost 34%. Uh, on the year on year right. and uh, a chart showing that they've been in a precipitous slide uh, since the Brexit referendum. 2016 was the peak, 1.7 million cars made then. Uh, this year they're heading for just over 900,000. So that industry is being absolutely hammered, firstly by Brexit and now by COVID. Yeah, just, just on the financial services, Sean, I don't know if you picked it up during the week, the, the UK is waiting to hear if they're getting equivalents uh, uh, granted by the European Commission uh, for their financial services sector. It's not part of the negotiations. It's a unilateral decision that the European Commission does, uh, you know, granting equivalence to other third countries to say, OK, we trust your financial services sector. Um, it, it seems that they have realised that they will not have a comprehensive equivalence arrangement ready for the UK by the end of the year. Um, they've, had, they've, they've arranged for two... 
temporary kind of bridging equivalents uh, agreements or arrangements rather um, one is on clearing houses and the other is on central securities depositories um, which will be given an 18 month I think uh, temporary bridging arrangement but again it's it's an indication I don't think this is necessarily hardball negotiating tactics on the EU side it's just it takes so long to go through all of the processes that will give the EU uh, confidence that they can trust the the UK financial services system in the future, given that they will be outside the legal framework of of the the European Union, which, as we know, since the financial crisis, has embarked on a whole architecture uh, of uh, banking union and uh, other safeguards against another financial meltdown. Yeah, but you know what, Tony? There isn't a single person in the city of London who believes a word of that. Uh, the EU was supposed to grant that uh, equivalence ruling back in June. And they've been holding out ever since and saying, oh, some things have changed. They haven't. It's not that hard to grant an equivalency ruling. Uh, they've had four years to look at this and uh, they know extremely well how the City of London functions and what its compliance levels are. I know it's not part of the negotiation. It is a unilateral granting of uh, uh, an equivalence ruling. Same applies for data, which is also going to be of enormous uh, consequence for uh, Britain and its services heavy industry. But the EU hasn't moved uh, at anything like light speed uh, to grant those equivalency rulings. And why should they? In the middle of a hardball negotiation, why make it easy for the other guy? If you're going to start squeezing, if the British are going to start squeezing on fish, well, the European Commission have other means uh, to start squeezing. And we've seen that in, in other areas. This this uh, notion in the and dispute settlement that you can uh, impose sanctions in one part of the agreement if somebody has violated in a different part of the agreement, something that the British are, are really keen to try and avoid, but the European Commission uh, are very keen to have in the agreement. So, yeah, the, the Commission knows how to stick its fingers into the sore parts of anybody's anatomy uh, as well as anybody else, uh, and the, the British know how to do the same as well, and they recognise a ferocious competitor when they see one. Okay, well, yeah, I think, to, yeah, on that point, I think Michel Barnier made, made that point to EU ambassadors this morning, saying, yeah, the, the, the UK want to uh, keep us away from their fish resources, but yet they want to have access to our financial services resources and energy and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, fair point. This is the old cakeism ideology, back in full swing. Well, I, I, I hate to resurrect uh, a pun that we've made on, on a previous episode of this podcast, but we, we hit what you might call, or at least what the Germans in the European Union, and indeed the Austrians might call, the worst case scenario between ourselves and the UK. <laughs> the, from, brat, uh, from brat to worst. Yeah, well, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, sausages, Tony, what's yeah. the problem? I mean, <clears throat> apart from cholesterol and high salt levels, mm. what's, the, what's the specific Brexit-related problem with sausages? I don't know what kind of sausages you eat, but um, anyway, uh, yeah, th I mean, th this is a classic case of Brexit, you know, departing from the abstract and getting real for people, uh, you know, gets, get, brings Brexit into the kitchen. So we, we've talked a lot about the Northern Ireland protocol. Northern Ireland will be following the EU food safety rules. The, U the rest of the UK won't. Um, lo and behold, it turns out that the EU either bans or restricts a range of meat products which are chilled or are kind of composite meals are, are simply uh, questionable from a traceability point of view. So that includes mince, uh, sausages, uh, poultry mince, either frozen or chilled, 
um, basically a, a, a spectrum of, of food that would be naturally shipped in large quantities from Great Britain to the supermarket shelves of Northern Ireland. So this came up in the Joint Committee a few weeks ago, this problem of, well, what do we do? Because the EU actually bans unfrozen sausages and mints and other uh, meat products like that from third countries. The UK is going to be a third country. What do we do? Um, So uh, in the middle of, of this, the UK said, well, actually, what we are going to do Uh, is we are going to effectively copy the EU's food safety rulebook from the 1st of January. When it comes to food, they're they're going to apply it from the 1st of April. Uh, But essentially, the the way this this has been interpreted uh, by the Department of Agriculture in Dublin and by the European Commission is that if those products are being banned by the EU from entering Northern Ireland from uh, the rest of the UK, then the UK will have a reciprocal ban on those products going from the EU into uh, in, into GB. Um, now, this has been confirmed by a report by the Food Safety Ag- the, the Food Standards Agency in the UK, uh, a, a report by their chief executive to the board, which confirmed that the that the UK would be applying uh, checks and controls and restrictions on high-risk food coming in from the EU. Um, So this has got everybody into uh, a bit of a pickle because, of course, Ireland, uh, the south of Ireland, would export fairly significant quantities of prepared meals, of chilled meals, um, not just meat, but uh, dairy products to the UK market. So suddenly we were looking at a potential two-way ban of these kind of products between the island of Ireland and Great Britain because of the Northern Ireland Protocol and because of the way that the UK was going to uh, interpret EU rules or rather mirror EU rules and say, well, we're going to apply the same uh, restrictions. So, you know, <laughs> your move kind of thing. Now, uh, this this has, I suppose, cast a, a fairly unforgiving light on the whole question of uh, food chains and food supply chains that have operated north and south and between Ireland and, and the UK and between the UK and uh, the, the rest of Europe that are suddenly going to be disrupted because if the UK bans sausages coming in from Ireland into the UK, then they're going to have to ban similar composite meats or unfrozen meats coming from the rest of Europe. So again, we got lots of headlines in British papers about uh, German sausage being banned in the sausage wars. Um, right. Now, they're, 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 this could end up being a complete mess or it could be part of a, of a wider scheme by the UK to try and get as much traction and get make as much progress as possible in the free trade negotiations because, of course, how the EU and the UK interact with each other when it comes to food is going to have to be, you know, delineated in a free trade agreement there's going to have to be a legal framework that they both sign up to. Um, and if they do find some benign overall arrangement, then these problems would probably disappear. But in general terms, the food supply chains that have flowed from Britain to Europe and, and, and back and forth, and of course Britain is a net importer of food, um, whether there's a, an agreement on food safety regimes both sides, the UK will still be subject to regulatory controls when they send their exports to the EU and into Ireland. 
and probably there will be controls uh, either way. Now, we can hear from Marie Gallagher, who is a food law specialist with Covington Burley uh, Law Firm, and she's been advising quite a few clients in Ireland, uh, supermarkets and so on, about what is coming down the tracks on the 1st of January, whether there's a trade deal or not. Uh, And we can hear from her now about the complexities involved. She's speaking to our agriculture correspondent, Fran McNulty, here. I think what's important to remember is that EU rules have not in fact changed. There has been no change to EU food law rules. What has changed is the fact that food coming from uh, Great Britain into the EU now has different rules. It is now treated like a third country, which means it is treated like Mexico or Brazil or the US. And those rules have always been in place for those countries. But it just means that now, as and from the 1st of January, those rules will also apply to food coming from Great Britain. That does present a significant issue, does it not, both for exporters here, but also for retailers here in terms of consumers getting the food they're used to? Yes, Brexit and, and uh, as we call them, the non-trade barriers. So, so everybody has been focused on a trade deal, on, tra- on quotas and tariffs. In fact, what is most problematic is the what we call the non-trade barriers. And these are things like the rules around food safety, the checks that are required to make sure that food is produced safely that is imported into the EU. Those rules um, actually differentiate between different types of products. So products that are deemed to be high risk, which will be products like animal products, they are products deemed to be high risk and therefore subjected to a higher level of scrutiny. And and given the way in which food has always passed uh, across borders from the the UK into Ireland and into other parts of the EU, those checks have never been enforced in, in, in the past. But now they're going to have to be enforced in order to maintain, as the EU says, its single market and to maintain its food safety standards within the EU. But there is no doubt it is problematic uh, because the way in which food is transported, it is transported in terms of the just-in-time delivery. And what that means is that we don't have big warehouses storing milk and cheese and meat. What happens is when the stock levels go down in a supermarket, there is an automatic reordering system. So what you find is you have a container that is coming into the EU, in this case from Great Britain, which contains a whole range of different products. Some of those fall into the high risk category and some are a lower risk. But when they're all in one container, that is what causes issues. Um, And as I say, these rules have always been in place, but they've been in place for third countries, which are typically much further away from the EU. And we don't import a lot of our day-to-day foodstuffs. So this is the challenge. Are there workarounds? Is it something that can be resolved easily, both for exporters and for importers too? Now, Fran, asking a food lawyer, is there, are there workarounds? Um, there are always workarounds, but, but I think in this situation, you know, we, we're, we're in a very difficult position because these EU food rules, food safety rules, have existed for many, many years um, and, and they are very well established. And I think that, you know, what's important for us in Ireland to remember is that it doesn't just affect Ireland. If you are a retailer in France or in Belgium or in the Netherlands, you also have these issues with imports from from Great Britain. So it's going to be difficult, I think, to find a workaround. Um, And and I think if you remember, there was a lot of talk about regulatory alignment 
that's what this is what regulatory alignment means it means where the systems are the same in each jurisdiction and um, we have moved away from that and so uh, that is now what is causing problems but this has been known i suppose to to, to many retailers and people in the industry um for the last you know four four and a half years um albeit last year with the with the uh, withdrawal agreement it crystallized some of these issues um, there may be a workaround, but I think it is something that will take time. Just two two points I would uh, make on this. Firstly, the UK may be threatening to carry out all these inspections on EU food, but it doesn't have the facilities as yet. They haven't been built. They haven't got the kind of sheds uh, of the sort that were on display down in Dublin Port um, on RTE News uh, earlier in the week. Uh, that's a state-of-the-art facility that's just been built there for doing precisely these kind of checks, but they haven't been built yet uh, in Britain. Uh, another point, uh, Victor Chestnut of the Ulster Farmers Union, when he was um, giving evidence at the Future Relations Committee uh, a couple of days ago, mentioned that 60% of Northern Ireland food exports go through the port of Dublin to get into uh, the British markets uh, because it's the fastest route to get into the big distribution uh, centres uh, in the Midlands. So what's going to happen to that? It's Are they going to be checking British-made, UK-made food entering into the uh, British market because it's come through the port of Dublin? Uh, it, and also again, that, it food, all gets that messy. food will have been raised, that, that, full of, that, sorry, that food will have been made, Sean, according to EU standards, because Northern Ireland will be operating to those standards uh, because of the protocol. There you go. It'll all be getting stuck in Dublin Port and we'll have nothing to do but eat it, I guess. That's the, the, barbecue that's the might only be solution. Another issue that came up this week, indeed, our colleague Conor Kane in the South East was reporting on it today. Tony, was a link between Dunkirk uh, and, and Ireland. Uh, Dunkirk, normally a port synonymous with the UK, of course, but this time around it's a direct connection between Ireland and Dunkirk. Yeah, that's right. So we, we had an announcement uh, on Friday, the, the day that um, we're, we're recording the podcast, that there would be a new shipping line from Rosslair to Dunkirk run by a Danish uh, shipping company. Uh, and again, this is expanding the repertoire of ferry sailings that would bring goods from Ireland to the single market, the European continent, without having to go over the land bridge because the land bridge is now becoming an increasingly unattractive prospect, even though historically it has been the quickest way of getting goods to the continent. 13 hours, Dublin to Calais, across uh, Holyhead down to Dover. Right, the new route is Ross Laird to Dunkirk is 24 hours. Yeah, but we can explain why uh, it, it will make perfect sense, uh, perhaps, if you take the direct route compared to the, the land bridge. I mean, basically, the because of Brexit, the UK, as we know, and as Sean has very graphically described in recent podcasts, all of the UK freight going to Calais uh, potentially will be held up at Dover, and uh, that's going to be a huge mess. But what happens to Irish trucks who use the land bridge you know they are just they're just moving produce from one part of the EU to another and they will be operating under transit uh, so the UK has joined the transit convention meaning that there's there's a set of procedures whereby you can register everything that's in your truck as a transit movement and uh, all of the details are there the truck is sealed you've paid a financial guarantee so that if the, if the goods go missing while it's still in the UK, then the, uh, the, the UK authorities will, will have their tariff guarantee if, if there are tariffs. Um, 
and again, because of the complexity of, of Brexit and the huge delays at Dover, uh, it is now becoming uh, increasingly unattractive for Irish hauliers to take that route. Uh, there are four different apps that they will have to be running in, in that journey. There will be an Irish app, there will be two UK apps, there's the, the uh, GVMS app, which apparently is not ready yet, um, that's the UK app for uh, vehicle movements. There's going to be the app for entering uh, Kent, the Kent access permit, and then there's an uh, there's another app for entering France. Now, I'm told that, that there are as many as 16 different procedures that Irish exporters will have to comply with when transiting goods across the land bridge. Um, that's going to be expensive. If there's, if there's no deal, then that means tariffs. And if you're sending agricultural produce like beef to the European mainland, then the higher the tariff, uh, which is very high on beef, then the higher the financial guarantee that you have to pay for the transit. So all of these costs and formalities start to mount up and uh, officials are now saying it is an absolute no-brainer that you're better off taking the direct route by ferry uh, because if you add in all of the delays and procedures that you're going to have to follow when transiting the, the land bridge, you may as well be on a direct route on a ferry with none of those formalities whatsoever because you're just going to be going directly from Ireland, an EU member state, to France, another EU member state. So it's seamless travel. And that was pretty much the sales pitch that the guy on, on RT News earlier this evening, Dan and Ross Lair, was, was making. It's more or less saying 24 hours stuck on a car ferry is better than doing the Brexit paperwork. And that's as stark as it gets. And we also got an, another indication of the paperwork problems this uh, earlier this week uh, down at the uh, Eurostar, um, or sorry, not the Eurostar, the Euro uh, Tunnel, Channel Tunnel uh, freight terminal uh, there because the French customs uh, and uh, immigration people started to test some of their systems uh, this week. They ran a, a short test uh, in the morning uh, to check the drivers uh, for identity papers. Uh, apparently it took an average of 70 seconds per cab, per truck, uh, to go through at the French end. But that caused an eight-kilometre-long tailback on the roads of Kent leading into the Channel Tunnel. So that was just one brief test of one of the systems uh, that is being employed and suddenly you got this big queue. So on top of all the paperwork, on top of all the apps, on top of all the customs checks, the veterinary checks, etc., you've got the time factor as well that you might well be stuck in these traffic queues, uh, which we've talked about before, and even the hygiene arrangements, whether they will be port or not port why they didn't think they ought to put port Now the latest thinking seems to be that they would have a crack squad of Portaloo operatives who would suddenly whiz out with truckloads of these Portaloos if a traffic queue suddenly emerged and they would plonk them down in the most appropriate spot right. and collect them briefly uh, in, in a short time later when the, the queue started to move again. But this is the kind of level of, of management and micromanagement that the authorities in Kent are, have been saddled with. And of course, Kent now finds itself in tier three, the highest level of lockdown 
uh, in uh, the UK, along with some of the uh, parts of northern England, just when it's coming up to this crunch period. Uh, at the end of the year. Right, so realistically we're not really comparing 13 hours with 24 hours. What's 13 hours now might be very much more than 13 hours if people were to take the land bridge post-January the 1st if the complications that you've just been talking about uh, come to fruition. Can we look ahead then to the coming days? Is it working through the weekend and every day up to the middle of December? Is every day potentially crunch day or have things been shoved out informally to around the middle of December as we understand it at this stage? Well, from Brussels' perspective, any treaty that's agreed has to be ratified by the European Parliament and they have said that they can extend their their uh, procedures. They can potentially have a vote between Christmas and the New Year. People have talked about December the 28th and because we're allowed to vote uh, remotely and virtually because of the COVID restrictions, you know, that would be a fairly easy thing to do. They would probably have to dispense with the uh, idea of running the treaty through various committees uh, because they just don't have time to do that. The, you know, once there's a breakthrough, then a, a text is, is not available the next day. You know, lawyers are going to have to go through the text and, and legally scrub it to make sure there are no inconsistencies in there. And it's only when you have a clean, scrubbed master text in English, only at that point can you translate it into the 23 languages, and that takes a couple of weeks. So realistically, I think if they're going to get this done in December, by the end of December, which they have to because EU law runs out on the 31st of December at 11 o'clock UK time, then you know they're really going to have to do this next week. Uh, so, yeah, the talks are have shifted to London. People say it's possibly easier for Boris Johnson to make that big political moment if the talks are happening in London rather than the sense yeah. that he UK was, negotiators are going to have to have to slope back from, from Brussels with their par- tails between their legs. Paraded down <laughs> the streets of Brussels in manacles like Karatikus. <laughs> Sean, how does it look for you? What's the tone like in terms of Boris Johnson being able to make a compromise? Is it full-throated no deal is fine by us. What's the political pressure like on Boris Johnson at the moment? Well, the political pressure right now is all about the COVID restrictions and this splitting of the country into tier two and tier three. Some bits are locked down uh, quite severely, some bits aren't. And all the MPs are up in arms about what level of restriction applies to them. So uh, he doesn't have that many chums on the back benches right now because of the uh, coronavirus. However, that might be a great time to start moving on Brexit because if they're all uh, up in arms over COVID, uh, then uh, they're not necessarily going to be getting into the detail of uh, trade agreements with the Europeans. As for the general public, they're looking forward to next Wednesday, which is the day of the, the great unlocking. It means people can A, go to the pub in certain limited circumstances. Uh, more particularly, they can start uh, gearing up for their Christmas plans. And that, I think, is what the great British public will be focusing on, having Christmas with their friends and family to the biggest extent that they possibly can, given all of these COVID restrictions. And again, if the public are somewhat distracted by uh, Christmas and COVID, they're not really going to be interested in Kent access permits and queues on the M20. Uh, So it might be a great time to try and ram a deal through, get it through the Parliament, because if people are preoccupied with Christmas or they're preoccupied with the COVID regulations and Boris Johnson comes on the TV and says, I've got a deal with Brussels, the like reaction is probably going to be, he's got a deal, great, 
get it through and that's get back one less to, thing to worry about back to christmas and and dealing with covid and, and all that in the new year one less thing to worry about one less thing off the agenda and the closer he can push it to the ending of the parliament uh, in london uh, that's more of a concern for him obviously than trying to get it translated and legally scrubbed and through the european parliament he'll have a bit of a task on his hand here the usual suspects uh, will be opposing it but it's probably not going to be any opposition uh, from the opposition benches, I think most people just would rather have a deal rather than no deal. Okay. All right. Well, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungoin, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan in Westminster. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. <laughs>